Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Alam, alam. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, John McManus and James Holland. Uh, our last meeting, I think, before the Christmas break, uh, obviously. Do you have turkey on Christmas Day? Because you do turkey on Thanksgiving, don't you? Here, yeah, I mean, some it. people do turkey. Um, a lot of people do, you know, prime rib or right. okay. ham or, you know, there's okay. a lot of different possibilities. It's not like, you know, turkey exclusive the way Thanksgiving tends to be. Right, yeah, but, okay. You know, we stuff our faces one way or the other. Too much. <laughs> How about you guys? A, we're having a goose. I'm cooking having a, a goose. goose. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. Um, very Dickens. Yeah. Okay, that's like, almost, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I think turkey is a, is 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 an American import, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Well, necessarily, yeah. You know, yeah, but I mean, my point is, is, is that the, it used to be, you know, Chris, the Christmas meal was a goose, wasn't it? And then it, yeah. it suddenly sort of changed at the turn of the 20th century, I think. But. This isn't called Where Ways to Make You Eat, um, this <laughs> <Yes>. podcast. <laughs> that would um, be a good one, though. I mean, mind you, mind you, yeah, I mean, the, 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 well, I think food podcasts are, are a big thing. Um, we, we, what we wanted to talk, or rather, James, you wanted to talk about this. So we're, so, so that's what we're going to do, um, which is the Battle of San Pietro. Well, yeah, and and that that whole operation in December nineteen forty three for Fifth Army. Uh, which actually includes Operation, you know, the appropriate named Operation Raincoat, um, which is the second <laughs> battle of Capino. Uh, and, you know, you've, it's just, it's really very overwhelming to be there, to be on the top of Monte Camino or to be on the bot- top of Monte Samucro. And you realise that these two giant sentinels that are overlooking the Mignano Gap. Uh, and this is the strongest part of the Bernhard line. And, and for those who... who don't know or those who've forgotten we mentioned it in previous episodes it's kind of like a double lock system here and and the reason this is so particularly strong is basically because the mountains go from one side to the other of the leg of italy so it's a very obvious natural strong point and there is just this one big route through which is the mignano gap and then at the foot of the monte casino massive about 10 miles eight miles further on at casino where the via casalina the main ancient roman highway that links naples to rome it hugs the kind of the coast, the, the the edge of the mountains at Casino on the kind of northeastern side, and then disappears up north into through the northeast, through northwest rather, through the Liri Valley. And so it's this double lock because the first first bit that the Allies have got to get through is the Bernhard line, the winter line, and then the second one is the Gustav line. And, and and these two lines are at their strongest at these two points: first the Mignano Gap, and then a Casino. And Casino is still to come, but in December 1943, 
the United States Fifth Army, which also includes French troops by this point and several divisions of British troops as well, are, are desperately trying to get through this unspeakably strong defensive position. And, and it's a horror. Why not stop uh, at this point? Of, of the, why not? You accept things as they are. The, the conditions are so bad, aren't they, for fighting? Why not? Why not wait till give yourselves a month off? Why not? Or wait till the spring? Or why? What's the imperative to carry on fighting in what is the opposite of the campaigning season? Because this is this isn't when you this isn't when you fight. The train does not favour the attacker. The allies are also, you know, they're, they're, a lot of their battalions have been they've been in the line a long time. They're all exhausted and they're they're running out of people and and stuff's going to Northwest Europe or in anticipation of an offensive in Northwest Europe, why carry on? Why not go, all right, we'll hold here. We're tying up enough Germans as it is. Let's, let's shell them for a couple of months and not carry on pushing. What's, what's the imperative to keep going? The main one really is the buffer north of the Fodger airfields. So the right. Fodger airfields have been captured on the 27th of September, an age away by December 1943. And it is considered by General Alexander, who is the army group commander, and absolutely rubber-stamped by Eisenhower, the Supreme Allied Commander of the Mediterranean, up until the end of December 1943, and indeed the Chiefs of Staff, that what is needed is at least 50 miles north of Rome to be safe. Because so much is being invested in Foggia. Originally, it was going to be six bomb groups, each of three, you know, each bomb group is three squadrons of, you know, 20 odd bombers. We have all the stuff that goes with it. You know, the ground crew, the fuel, the maintenance, the tents, the, you know, the whole shebang. That's been increased to 21 by March 1944. And this is a key component of Operation Overlord. This this idea that you have to have complete control of airspace over the whole swathe of Northwest Europe before you can even think about crossing the Channel, and it is seen that just operating out of bases from the UK to destroy the Luftwaffe, or certainly to push the the Luftwaffe back far enough that they're not going to be a problem in Northwest Europe and and a problem in Overlord. Operating out of bases from the UK is not enough, and that a key part of this closing of the noose around the German aircraft industry particularly, and that means you know destroying hitting factories and all the rest of it, is getting into Foggia and operating out of Foggia, certainly by the, you know, very heavily by the spring of 1944, which is why they're saying 21 bomb groups by March 1944, which is a huge commitment. And obviously you don't want to be doing investing all this time, all this effort, all this commitment in these airfields around Foggia, which lies about two-thirds of the way up the leg on the Adriatic side, not on the western side where the Fifth Army are, if you're then going to lose it again. And, you know, there are huge numbers of German troops in Italy. There's more divisions than there are Allied divisions. The reason they're not all down at the front is because of German paranoia about being out, outflanked. But that's neither here nor there. You know, if you're, if you're the Allies, this is a very kind of high-risk situation. And so you've got to keep pushing away. But defending in this part of the world is a straightforward business, is it not? I mean, this is the thing. Oh, John, this is ideal defensible country, isn't it? You only have to look it's at It's perfect defensible country. I mean, it's made for that. Plus, the coast of Italy from coast to coast isn't that far. So they don't have to use up that much manpower either. You know, I also think in terms of why you keep pushing for the, as the allies, there's the, the sort of political symbolism and allure of Rome. Uh, that maybe that's why we're on the Italian peninsula at all. Well, that's certainly why, why Churchill thinks so. 
Exactly. And that's, and so you, it's like almost like the mindset seems to me is almost like, well, we, we can't be there without getting Rome. We have to get Rome. And of course, then that means you have to keep pushing and to keep, keep that pressure on the Germans too, uh, you know, to keep eating up their manpower. And, and time is running out. There is this, you know, they've always said we're going to be in Rome by Christmas. And, the, the, you know, the, they went into Italy on this promise that the, you know, this assumption that the Germans were going to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line, which is about 200 miles north of Rome. So it was going to be this incredibly easy victory and everyone's a winner. But as we know, the Germans sort of changed their, you know, Hitler changed his mind, decided to kind of fight for every yard. And so there is this compunction for the Germans to fight south of Rome, even when clearly it's, you know, they've lost Foggia. So therefore, there's no kind of massive point to it. But the Allies are also committed to, to getting on with it because the clock is ticking and, and they know they've got, to, they've got to get through and Overlord is you know getting ever closer with every passing minute and we've got to get there so that we can have these, our bombers can operate out of Foggia and we need that up and running by spring and you know that needs, means we need our cushion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so there is this huge pressure on it and, and everything that, that everyone, those who the naysayers feared about Italy has come to pass because, of course, it is sucking up more men and material. The thing is, Jim, the point you make very clearly in, in uh, Savage Storm is that, you know, for want of a better way of putting this, this is the third world road network that can't cope with, you know, the 3,000 vehicles that go with each infantry division, for instance. So would there even have been room for more? Do you have an option on more armies in Italy? Would that work anyway? It is, it's actually in the, the rough way that things have mussed themselves out. This is actually the best way to, to do this whole theatre. Yes, there is room in Italy because, um, you know, in May 1944, you have two armies literally alongside each other, the, the fifth and the eighth, and the, and the fifth army is massively swollen by that stage, you know, with the full whack of the, of the French Expeditionary Corps, etc., and a whole enlarged corps waiting for them at Anzio. So, yes, there is. The point is there isn't in winter when it's really the days are short the weather's appalling it's pouring with rain the rivers of rivers are flooded you know all the bridges have been blown up but there was in september that's the point and the whole point about the italian campaign is this is supposed to be a short sharp boom, boom get in smash it get italy out of war get foggia get to rome bish bash bosh all done by kind of you know october the 10th had they landed with more more landing craft i don't think it's too fanciful for t to suggest that say Fifth Army had landed with six divisions rather than three, plus the special forces, plus a bit more kind of, you know, warships and all the rest of it. 16th Panzer would have had no chance of holding them for a minute. The counterattack would have completely failed before it had even got started because they'd have just swarmed straight through. The reason, you know, Salerno is such a tight fight. And then also that means you could have then also landed more divisions straight in to Taranto and Bari and Brindisi, and you could have completely overwhelmed whatever German defence, you know, before they had a chance to kind of see what was happening. And the whole thing, you know, you absolutely do get to Rome by, by you know, second week of October or something. And, th and then it's, and then you can, once you get north of Rome, then you can have a have another think once the weather kicks in, you know. But, but it is fundamentally underestimating the strength of the enemy to start off with, not preparing enough to start off with, and under-resourcing what is an incredibly ambitious operation, and I'm talking about Operation Avalanche here, which is the Salerno landings, to land with three divisions only on, on such a major operation in that terrain with, with the hills absolutely surrounded by German observers. It's just not enough. And the warships they've got, you know, talking about warships, they've got like 71 warships compared to 250 for the Husky. I mean, it, it is just not enough. And 
it's based on a wing and a prayer that the Italians are going to come in on their side. You know, I mean, how would how could you ever make a plan depending on the Italians at this point? Yeah, especially after a giant two and that you know that whole totally Rome fiasco it's, right. about, about dropping yeah. the 82nd Airborne Division there, which was absurd. It's 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 bonkers, and the whole presumption that the Germans are going to retreat to the Peace of Rimini line, which indeed they are right up to the moment of of invasion, but but the that is the case. But the basis, the intelligence basis that the Allies have for this is based on one piece of evidence back in May 1943, a decrypted um, enigma bit of traffic. And the second bit is the say-so of the Italians who are saying in, during the armistice negotiations, when the Allies go, and do you, is, is it still the German plan to retreat to the Pisa Rimini line? They go, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, they would say that, wouldn't they? So I breezy, mean, I know. It's so breezy. And... and Consequently, that they're now they've gone down this course. That they, you know, Mark Clark and his Fifth Army have actually pulled off quite an achievement in 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 winning the day at Salerno. I would say, you know, because they've got the the weight of six and a bit divisions coming towards them. They don't have anything like that amount, and they're seeing it off. Okay, they're seeing it off with the help of colossal firepower from from the strategic air forces, the tactical air forces, but also increased warships. But even so, it's it's still a it's still a big thing, and Fifth Army and everyone who's involved in that should be extremely proud of what they do because the, the, you know the, it is a hundred percent total commitment. Every single battalion thrown into the line, you know, cooks and you know clerks and manning lines with rifles and all the rest of it. I mean, it really is that desperate, and yet they pull it off. And because Kesselring has thrown all his eggs in one basket, Kesselring being the uh, overall German commander in the south of Italy at this point. Because he's thrown all his eggs into one basket, he's he's left the back door open. And the back door is Taranto and Bari and Brindisi, where there is almost no troops whatsoever. And the only troops there are, are the troops which are least suited to being there, which are the Fauschenjäger, who are the paratroopers, who are the are very heavily armed in small arms, but very poorly armed because they're paratroopers, in heavy equipment. So, so. All they can do in in defence to the British landing in Taranto and subsequent landings around the other side of the coast, uh, on the Adriatic coast, is rear guards and mining operations and all the rest of it. So this action at Salerno has caught Hitler's eye. And so suddenly Kesselring is the Buana, not Rommel with his plans to retreat to the north. Rommel is kicked off to to, to Normandy, and suddenly Kesselring finds himself in charge of the whole thing. And because he's this sort of relentless optimist, you know, which is not a particularly useful attribute to have, to be honest, you want to be a realist. You know, you don't want to be defeatist, but you don't want to be over-optimistic either. That's no, that's no good. Suddenly Hitler's watching him, and the Hitlerian spotlight's on him, and he, he his room for manoeuvre is zero, because Hitler's now saying you've got to defend every single yard. So he's just chucking good after bad. I mean, you're, see, you're seeing vast numbers of German troops absolutely destroyed uh completely annihilated in the in this awful clash is this how the allies are reading it are they seeing it as kessering sort of feeding themselves into the mincer or are they thinking to, to what extent do they do they know that decision making by the germans is this chaotic or are they are they no, thinking I don't think they do right they don't have a good sense of that at all i don't think i mean I, I think they're thinking this is determined and you know every time you say a determined and skillful defense but um, right. I don't. I don't think it is particularly skillful. I would really question that because you know how hard is it to kind of sit in a behind a rock in a mountain with a machine gun and keep firing? I mean, or or 
set of mortar. I mean, but we always assume that they, these are crack troops and they, these are defenses they've been working on for years. And all. it's the same same thing with Normandy too. Like you know, oh, they've been working on this for years and years. Well, no, they've been working on it for weeks and weeks. It's always that thing. They know the country, so they think, well, it's a mountain with one road up it. Right. I mean, I can work. How hard can it be to defend it? I mean, it's <laughs> exactly. just it's 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 really not. I mean, and there's this very very interesting work by a German academic called Magnus Paul, who really questions the skillful defense of the Fauschenjäger of Casino. It's, I mean, he's he's just saying you know, they put them on a pedestal they don't deserve. You know, they're all German, um, so they're not Ostbritalians. So that gives them kind of you know slightly better morale and and. Motivation. incentive and all the motivation yeah. and stuff but 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 to say that they're all highly skilled and highly trained is just nonsense and and well they're good enough they 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 they're willing to fight which is all they have to be um in that kind of terrain they're willing to to stand and fight they can do a hell of a lot of damage and that that's the problem with with the you know fighting in Italy in the first place is that you don't necessarily have to be facing an enemy that is all that high speed they can inflict massive damage on you just by controlling the, the kind of terrain they do and, and controlling something of the firepower that they have. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, von Sanger, who is the commander of the 14th Panzer Corps, which is holding this section of the front from, uh, when does he take over? Kind of late October, I think, if I remember rightly, 1943. You know, he is repeatedly saying, we need to pull back to the Gustav line. I mean, we need to abandon the Bernhard line. This is this is absolutely ridiculous because, you know, they're getting 80% casualties in their frontline troops. I mean, you know, I mean... Incredible. But, but by today's standards, you would say any unit that has suffered 30% casualties is can no longer function. Would you yeah. not, John? I mean, you know more about absolutely. combat than I do. It's combat ineffective, um, almost certainly. Combat ineffective yeah. at 30, uh, 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 30% losses. Easily. These guys are suffering 80% losses. You know, you've, you've got ludicrous scenarios where you've got you know it is generally considered by von sanger and by others that the third panzer grenadier division and the 15 panzer grenadier are better than than others because they've been around longer and they've been in theater longer and there's always a cadre of people who know what they're about and have you know experienced in this terrain and they're kind of totally abused uh, and what you also find is you find penny packets being used. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. one of the great mantras of the Blitzkrieg era is concentration of force, the Schwerpunkt. You know, this is the kind of the idea of the fist. You know, hit hard with the hit hard with the fist, not what is it? What's that Guderian quote? I always forget it. Nocken nicht Blixen or whatever it is. <laughs> Klotzen nicht Klaven or something like that, isn't it? Something like that. Whatever it is. Anyway, Cliff Klaven? What? <laughs> Klotzen. Klotzen anyway, or something. I can't remember. Not uh, Klotzen nicht Klaken. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, Jesus. basically hit hard, not softly is basically the, the, the point. And this is the whole yeah. point of the Schwerpunkt. Uh, and what you're finding is, is is that, you know, the third Panzer Grenadier is just being, you know, some of the units are on Monte Camino, some are up on Monte Mayala, some are on kind of, you know, on Monte Samucro. They're all over the place. I mean, it's just an absolute disaster. And, and morale is appalling. I mean, absolutely appalling. And they're being they're being absolutely well, it's, hammered. It's similar to what's going on in Russia. I mean, it, it's always the same argument there. I don't give an inch. Uh, you know, units destroyed, caught in pockets. You know, the, it, that. I mean, that's already happening on the Russian front too. So this is the same thing now, just playing out in Italy. It's this hit the Hitlerian kind of defend every inch of ground approach. And you know, I mean, you're seeing it play out the same way. You know, just in this particular terrain, which happens to be more advantageous than than a lot of what they're dealing with in Russia. Yeah, same mindset. But but the fundamentals of it are that 
a modern army needs these arteries of, of railways and, and roadways, and, and the Via Casalina is is the main road. There's four routes across that go northwards up up Italy, but this is the number one route north from Naples to, to Rome, the Via Casalina, the Highway Six, and you need that road, you know, because obviously. You need to go through the valleys because trucks and lorries and tanks and artillery pieces can't climb up mountains. You know, that's just impossible. But on top of the mountains overlooking the roads are German observers with their fantastic optics. And they are surrounded by infantry protecting those observers. I mean, this is in its absolute basic, basic kind of form. And the observers are directing artillery fire onto those arteries, onto the Via Casalina. So that you simply, if you're the American Fifth Army, you cannot go north through the up the Via Casalina until you have cleared the peaks on which these observers are viewing your every move in the valley below. And the only way you can clear these peaks of those observers is to send infantry up there with pack mules and supplies and prize out every single one, plus the infantry that are there to protect them. And, and that means this insane battles in the middle of the winter which culminates in, in, in December 1943 with the Second Battle of Camino on one side, which is largely the British plus the Special Service Force, which is a mixed American-Canadian force, on the, on the southern side, and the 36th Texan Division on the northern side. And, and as everyone knows, the three most difficult things for an infantry unit to do are one- an opposed beach landing, two, cross rivers, three, <laughs> take mountain peaks. And the poor old Texans have just got to do it over and over again. They are such a bad luck unit. I mean, it, it, oh my they, they start off me. with Salerno. They deal with this nightmare. They deal with the Rapido. They end up in the Vosges. I mean, just such a hard luck unit. Uh, I think the only one I'd compare them to is the 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard which has a wonderful moment in Paris, but really ends up in, in some of the worst meat grinders of the war, like at Hurtgen. They take the brunt of the German offensive in the Battle of Bulge and the Bastogne Corridor, and later they fight in the Colmar Pocket. You know, So here's the 36, having survived Salerno. Now they got to deal with this nightmare. We generally call the Battle of San Pietro, but as, as Jim really, I think, remarkably you know, and eloquently covers in, in his book Savage Storm, it's a, really about the struggle for these ridge lines that, that lead to the town on, on many levels, right? I mean, that's that's the key terrain that you have to have. And you, you end up with the, the commitment of the whole division. There isn't even a re reserve regiment as this thing plays out. Absolutely. And, and on the flanks of these peaks, you've got other peaks. So, so for example, Monte Corno is one of these peaks, and it, and it, and it looks over Vanafra, the town of Vanafra, which is a sort of base camp for 36, well, Fifth Army's operations, frankly, in this in, on the Bernhard line. The Rangers, the US Army Rangers, Derby's Rangers, are on top of Monte Corno for 45 days, which is longer than the entire Sicilian campaign. Incredible. I mean, yeah. And that's a yeah. Ranger battalion that's not supposed to fight that way. Oh, they're doing all mm -hmm. sorts of things like they're sort of they're trying to kind of annoy the Germans by putting kind of, you know, loud speakers onto known mines and they creep out in the middle of the night, put a speaker out, set the radio going, it's on a mine, they blow up, you know. I mean, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's it's just, it's bonkers. And, and so you have this 
really, really brutal battle for, for San Pietro, which is the village which is on the kind of lower slopes of Monte Samucra. And Monte Samucra is this huge 3,000-foot-high peak, you know, either side of, of the Mignano Gap. And San Pietro is the symbol of this battle, I think, really, this wider valley, uh, this wider wider battle, which includes Camino, which includes kind of Monte Lungo, which is this long saddle in the middle of the valley floor, Monte Rotondo. You know, this is where Audie Murphy is and the third division before they're, before they're moved back and, placed, um, and replaced by the 36 Texans. And, you know, it's San Pietro is this this once beautiful village i mean you know when you're thinking about about italian villages with little winding cobbled streets and all the rest of it in a kind of, sort of pre-motorized age everyone knows everyone there's the church at the heart of it which is substantially the biggest um building there um where the municipio uh, the you know the kind of town municipal building the town hall uh, that was there, and it's using stones there, uh, uh, which are date back to Roman times. In fact, actually, you can still see in the ruins of San Pietro, you can see a little kind of um, a, a stone seat, I suppose it is. And on the top of the seat, you can see carved into the stone an ancient Roman board game on the stone. So this is a village that has been lived in forever, you know, for, for millennia. And the rhythms of its daily life have continued, you know, untroubled for for centuries you know these are peasant farmers contadini as we would call them which are basically sharecroppers so you kind of you know half of what you give you give to a padrone a kind of overlord and there's an agent who comes around and collects every year then there's a few other people who've kind of escaped the contadini system but this is basically that that how it works and, and it's been like this for decades for centuries unchanged really very you know kept away from the rest of the kind of the kind of modern world, you know, fascism touches this only very, very lightly, a place like this. Um, and this is the place of Wilhelm Maus, who was the uh, the medical chief medical doctor for the, uh, for the 14th Panzer Corps. Back in October, is saying, you know, I can see this village in the hills and it all looks very beautiful and the sun's shining down and, you know, I'm amidst the almond groves and the olives and the kind of vineyards and it all looks so beautiful, uh, this sort of haven. And he says, but I know that war is about to come here and, and tear this place to shreds. But, but you know, nature, uh, and, and he's absolutely bang on, you know. And, and because they had, a lot of the, the villagers had been evacuated, you know, before the heaviest yeah. fighting begins. And, of course, you'd have this undercurrent uh, of the coercion of the German presence taking the young men to work them as laborers or, or do whatever. So some of them had, uh, had fled. Families were trying to hide them. Families were hiding out in caves, uh, like the cave terrain that some of which is there. So even before the actual American attack, the village has been denuded a lot out of its population. Uh, so they've been affected that way. And there's a couple things too, that really strike me about this battle. The Italian experience, certainly on the, the civilian side, but also this first motorized group, that becomes the first Italian soldiers to be fighting, you know, for their own soil. Um, and I think we tend to overlook that. But also, too, this really strikes me as a, an historian of the U.S. Army, uh, especially in this era. We actually embrace the idea of a night attack, which happens nowhere near enough for the U.S. Armed Forces in the course of this war. We tend to fight a dawn to dusk kind of combat. You know, we, we embrace that kind of combat rhythm. At San Pietro, it's completely different. So you have this social situation playing out. You've got the Italian military presence, and then you've got this difference in the American attack. I think it's really interesting. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment.
Why are the Americans not keen on night attacks? Because after all, the, the, you know, it's, it's one of the things that in the British historiography, they like to pride themselves on the fact that Brit- the British do attack at night. The Germans are very bad at fighting at night. And that's always an impression you always get from the literature. Why, why are the Americans not nocturnal? What's, what's going on? I think there's a sense that it's really hard to coordinate troops um, and their movement at night uh, to coordinate uh, vehicles and especially your supporting firepower, uh, your artillery observation your airstrikes. There's a sense that we're really most potent in the daylight hours because that's where we can really employ our firepower at its maximum effect. And once we have it at night, we can do it defensively, but maybe not offensively. And I think it's a bit of a cop-out, but remember, this is before the night vision era or whatever. But it's one of the things I really do often criticize about the American armed forces that I think, just in a very general sense, we kind of cede the night to our enemies through the Vietnam era, almost, uh, the pre-night vision era. It changes radically after that. But it's almost like, okay, well, it's nightfall now, so let's hunker down in a perimeter, and we'll just shoot at anything that moves out there. Um, now, in the European theater, you've got you know recon patrols and combat patrols going out at night and all that kind of stuff, too. But I'm talking about major attacks, like at San Pietro where they're actually going to move at night. And I think the thinking there, you know, I don't know, Jim, what your impression was, but it, my, it's always been my view that their impression is that's the way you could do this kind of coup de main to take this sort of tough high ground that in the daylight, the Germans are looking right down your throat. Yeah, so, they'll see they, so It's yeah, almost out of yeah. desperation, don't you think? It's like, so it's almost out of desperation that we embrace this idea of a, a night attack. And I, and I wish it would have been applied other places. Well, it's, too. it sort of fits it fits into the pictures of those rangers trying stuff because they because basically they're stuck. So you start thinking, you start having to literally having you have to start thinking outside your usual way of doing things to to try and find a solution. It's it's, it's sort of as simple as that, isn't yeah. it? I mean, a lot of the fighting on Monte Smucco that the British have been doing has been has been um, on Camino rather has been at night. So so the Ox and Bucks are on Camino at the start of December helping the guards, and that's all at night. All of that is going on at night. Absolutely everything they're doing attempts to attempts to get the Germans off the top of the hill. It's all night fighting. It's, I mean, and it's all and it's all horrendous and disorganized and organized within the parameters of how difficult fighting at night is. Trying to do set piece attacks, being caught up in a state of constant change of improvisation, no one really knowing where they are, no one really knowing what's going on, all that sort of thing. And it not working. So even even attacking at night is no guarantee of success in this situation. So so the other thing is is the topography of the mountains. So so in the case of Samukro, there's a kind of sort of the southwest facing t- towards the sea effectively because there's a temptation to think that sort of you know Italy just goes northwards, but actually it's the leg of Italy is at an angle which is sort of roughly in a kind of sort of northwesterly direction if you're looking northwards. So the south west facing side of of Samukro is pretty steep and at the top it's really steep you, you can't attack up it you just, you just can't i mean you, you can crawl up it two-handed just about from the german side from the kind of northern side of it, it it's a climb but it's a it's a comparatively gentle climb i mean you can walk on a, you can climb up to the summit on your own two feet from the german side and today if you were going to climb up Samukro, that is the route you would take you would take the german approach and that is definitely the easiest way so again that f- that favours the defender massively. The only alternative route to get, get to the summit from the American point of view is from the southeast, and that follows two ridges. And, and, and the ridges are unspeakably challenging. They're narrow ridges, which canalises you. 
and they're pretty steep. And as you get near the summit of Samukro, it's it's pretty hardcore. I mean, you are you are having to kind of occasionally use your hands to haul yourself up and all this kind of stuff. And it's just it's unthinkable that you could do this in daylight. I mean, you know, because because everyone will see you. You can, you can cover it in smoke, but you just you just it's unthinkable. The only chance you have to do it is is to use the night and to use shadows and rocks and and to kind of scamper up there. And the amazing thing is that they do take the peak of Samukro on, I think it's the 9th of December, which is basically the same time that the Germans decided to bug out of Camino. And they're on the peak, but then it immediately from the peak, it drops down and then rises up again to these three knolls, these little high points. So you might be on the top of Samukro, but you can't, and you can, from there, you can direct artillery fire. Yes, you absolutely can, but, but, but you've still got to actually physically get men down from the summit and then climb up again to these three hillocks, you know, these sort of stony outcrops, these high points, which are not as high as the Samukro summit, but still involve going down then up again to reach them, if you see what I mean. And that's the war in Italy. There's always another summit. And I, and I cannot begin to tell you, when you're, when you're at the top of Samukro, the thing that strikes you is there is no soil. <laughs> I mean, there is soil, but, but it, there's no place to no dig soil. in. Everywhere you go is just lots and lots of pebbles and stones and small stones and big stones, all of which have obviously been smashed up by artillery back in 1943, which has made the, made the situation worse. And obviously, the, the, this exaggerates the effect of every mortar and every grenade and, and every artillery round that's coming down because the shell's got nowhere to go, so it just goes out and takes with it lots of shards of razor-sharp bits of limestone rock. And so the lethality of the shelling is is substantially greater than it was. And of course, the problem that, that they they finally have they they've got this inc- you know Walker comes up. Fred Walker is the, the major general commanding of the thirty sixth Texans, and he comes up with this unspeakably complicated plan for the final crushing of this position on the on the northern side, which involves an attack with tanks down the only kind of high low road if you see what i mean it's above the valley floor but it is parallel to the the mountain so it's got a kind of you know it's got a a sharp side to the north like any mountain road that's running down the side of a mountain it's got a drop on the left hand side and it's got a steep climb on the wall on the right hand side so there's no room for maneuver whatsoever so these tanks can only go in line astern you know one after the other and there's 17 of them 16 shermans and one valentine and so that is one plan which is going to be launched on the morning of the I think it's the 15th of December, if I remember rightly, followed by a coordinated attack that night <laughs> on the, from the summit to take these three peaks below the summit in a night operation. And then the following morning, they're all going to come together in San Pietro and clear off the whole mountain for the following morning. And there is also another operation to kind of sort of clear the rest of Monte Lungo and blah, blah, blah. And there is just not a not a net chance of this all coming together because it's it, there's too many moving parts, there's too many levers. It's a really, really bad plan. And, and that is Walker's plan. I mean, you know, there's no one else's plan. You know what's ironic about all this? We're there for air power uh, in a way. You know, the, the heavy bombers and all that, like you said, Jim, uh, you know, improving upon Fogia, sending in more resources than you ever expect. And all of which is supposed to negate this very kind of warfare. But actually, how are we fighting now? We're fighting almost with rocks. 
man to man, infantry to infantry, deep in these these ridges and hills at night. It couldn't be more elemental, could it? And when we try and send in some of the more modern ground vehicles and, and weapons, these tanks, it's more or less a disaster. So how can this could be done? Um, like you said, infantry with mules up there fighting on these peaks. And that's the war. I mean, it, 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 all these things were not supposed to happen, were they? I mean, it, it was supposed to be the end of this kind of ground fighting. And in fact, this search for air power has led to exactly this kind of struggle of ground power in, in that sense. But, but, but the interesting thing is the Allied Chiefs of Staff and the, and the, and the big chiefs in Italy have only got, you know, all of, pretty much all of whom were, were in theater in North Africa the previous winter have only got a look at Tunisia. Which was all supposed to be over by yeah, Christmas, right? And wasn't. And why wasn't it? Because it was wet and miserable and cold, and the mud got in the way, and there was ten times cloud, and Allied air forces couldn't operate in the way that they wanted to, and they hadn't quite got themselves organised as well. But but here you are again, and and it and it just goes to prove that the old campaigning series of, of season of of sort of in the days of yore are still as valid in this valid in this kind of hyper mechanized ultra modern war of the 1940s as they were back in kind of 1600s they really are and and, and we're always so fixated on ending things before christmas i mean that's just so mystifying to me because it's the same thing the next year you know when oh the germans are going to collapse after normandy and we'll we'll all be home by christmas well even if the war ends you're not gonna be home by christmas i hate to tell you dude i mean it's not gonna happen <laughs> we're gonna need you for occupation and whatever else i mean yeah it's just mystifying to me uh you saw the same thing like, like i said in tunisia um, we see the same thing then, you know, the, the, the next year in Italy, we're going to be a Rome by Christmas or whatever. But, you know, there, there's, it strikes me there, there's two things about this, this horrible fight at San Pietro that we, we should probably address that are best remembered about it. Uh, the death of Captain Henry Wasco, uh, which becomes, of course, Ernie Pyle's probably most famous column, wouldn't we all say? And then, uh, you know, and, and of course, the John Huston film called san pietro or battle of san pietro or whatever which is ostensibly showing the battle but as we all know not really i mean that those are really interesting base points here i mean wasco is killed in the context of these very operations we're talking about well he is killed on that night the night of the 15th 16th which is the night battle that follows the kind of the uh, the fight earlier that day to try and get into san pietro from the lower slopes what, what they have to do that night and i i think it's the hundred and 42nd, if I remember rightly. Um, second, is it the second battalion of the 142nd? I think he's I second battalion. Yeah. Maybe E Company, but I could be wrong. Something like that. that. But, but, but what I do know is, is that, that out of that battalion, by the following morning, only 155 men are still standing. Yeah. You know, out of a battalion of 850 or whatever it is. And, and this, is, this is also symptomatic of the supply situation in Italy. That the, These battalions are operating constantly at understrength. They're, they're never full strength, which is a situation which is sort of rarely tolerated in Normandy, for example, in the in you know six months further down the line. Captain Wasco is is killed leading his his company. He's B Company 143rd. 143rd, that's right. Yeah. And battalion, um, so it's the second battalion. And you know, there's, there's quite a good moon that night. It's a clear night. And it's so obvious. I, I remember standing on one of these one of these three knolls that they've got to try and capture, looking back up towards the peak of of, of, of Samukro, and you can totally see why so many Texans, uh, so many of these divisions, these Americans of this division, this battalion, are getting cut down, because behind your rock on this knoll, you are totally hidden, totally, totally hidden. 
the moment anyone gets up from the peak, you're silhouetted against the sky, this moonlit sky. You simply cannot move. You know, you described really well the the, the fragmentation effect earlier of all the rocks yeah. and whatnot. Up there. Well, it's fragments that basically kill him, that take a big chunk out of his chest. And again, that's kind of a microcosm, isn't it? That, like you said, you're silhouetted up there. Um, all the Germans have to do is throw in some mortar rounds or call in some artillery. doesn't take great skill, you know, to, to your earlier point. Uh, it just takes basic soldiering. And you can inflict massive losses, of which Wasco becomes kind of the face of this whole, this horrible operation that really, you know, probably eats up about a third of the division's combat power, I would say, roughly, you know. Absolutely. Um, and the amazing thing is, from the top of Samukro, the top of Samukro, you can you can see the, the foot of the mule trail. I mean, it, 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 it can only be that one, because there's basically only two routes up. There's, there's no alternative. And, and they know that. Um, and the other thing that's amazing about it is, and I've said, mentioned this to you before, but but you don't need a metal detector to find shrapnel up there. I mean, you just just wander around. I mean, to literally just walk up there, and it's everyone. When we went up there last time in whenever it was April, everyone found some. I mean, everyone found some just just by kind of half looking at the ground as you're kind of wandering up. I mean, it's everywhere. And the other thing is, there's still remains of German sangers and stuff, and and they're 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 really strong positions. I mean, you know, because you're completely hidden behind these rocks behind these little hollows, you know, they're, they're sort of scrapes in the ground surrounded by rocks. I mean, we've all seen the things before. I mean, it, it, you know the look. And from a defender's point of view, these are just very strong. And what what does for them, ultimately, is that the Germans just lose more men than the Americans do. And there are enough of them defending the mountain by this stage because the attrition rate has been so great. And the German replacements are even, you know, poorer than than the Americans are. And they just can't, can't hold it any longer. There's just not enough manpower to do it. But what holds them up for such a long time is uh, the Americans up for such a long time is because comparatively few defenders with mortars and machine guns can cause a hell of a lot of damage. Yeah. You know, it's a very, very, very difficult place. I mean, it is it is insane that they're fighting up there. I mean, re- really. But, w- but what's the alternative? There is there is no alternative to doing that. And that's that why they're, they're fighting up there because there's no other alternative if we're to to have this mission. Well, and, and it also speaks to, I think, a larger point of why do the Allies succeed? Because they have enough persistence. They have enough resolve to continue fighting. They have enough people who are willing to do this. And again, here, let's just look at what happens with the first the, the Italian first motorized group uh, that goes up there for all of one night or something, and not necessarily to disparage them, but but they, they take terrible losses, and they're like, okay, I'm sorry we couldn't do the mission, we're done. They have a very rational viewpoint in that sense, but that usually isn't the Anglo-American viewpoint. It's, okay, we've just gotten our nose terribly bloodied. Let's figure out another way to keep doing this, but we will keep doing it, and we will keep attacking until we take it. <laughs> and and I think yeah. that's a lot of times what get lost, gets lost in this sort of allied inevitability kind of uh, interpretation of World War II, that, oh, they're going to win no matter what, is the real details of how, what this was like. And that if I'm in the 36th division, it's, it's, you know what, what can you do to me worse than sending you up, sending me up there? Um, military discipline. Are you kidding me? So something has to propel me to keep going up there and fighting whatever it is. Maybe it's great leadership like Wasco. That could be, maybe it's not, uh, you know, I don't know, but whatever it is, we find enough people to continue to do this. And I think this is a classic example because San Pietro is a horrible battle. 
Uh, well, I was going to ask, because one of the things that's striking about this battle is, you know, for instance, Pyle's journalism, which is, which is, you know, I mean, it's very moving to read. And it makes it sort of unequivocal that the war is about loss. It is about death. It is about the senselessness of death and all that. And then there's John Houston's film as well, which we mentioned earlier. So the public, the public in America are not getting a varnished version of this. I think it's very interesting that the American way of doing things at this time. And, you know, we watched the Tarawa footage as well, which obviously had to be, you know, cleared by FDR because it was because it had American dead in it, all that sort of stuff. The, the American approach seems to be to say, and given it, given you, you know, given there's a American opinion only five minutes previously has been very largely in favour of not getting involved and Europe's none of, their, none of America's business politically and all this sort of stuff. I think it's really interesting that the way of telling the story of the war for public consumption at home is with this very frank stuff. Where's that coming from? What's, what's the sort of reasoning behind that? And who's making those decisions? Oh, I think, uh, you know, certainly the Roosevelt administration, the Office of War Information, um, in tandem with the military service chiefs like General George Marshall in, in the case of the Battle of San Pietro film, um, and I think where this comes from is that for the average American, this war can be a very detached thing. It's, uh, oh, I have a war-related job now, and, and I've got great employment, and I'm making money, and or I'm living in a different place. It's all very exciting. You know, I'm a young person working in Washington, D.C. now. I'm an African-American leaving the Deep South for opportunities on the West Coast or, you know, whatever. There could be a temptation. This is all very distant, and I think it's a reminder that the government wants for some at the right time and place sort of spoon feeding the public. Hey, look, this is what the war really is. And this is why you don't slack off in your, you know, factory job or whatever it is you're doing. And this is why you need to keep supporting because for the guys who are fighting it, this is the reality. I think there, there's a real um, schism there between those who are fighting the war and those who are home, particularly those who are in labor unions and think, yeah, we can strike it's like normal times. We need a better contract or whatever. And, you know, it, it, it isn't normal times. There's people's lives on the line. And they have the opportunity to bargain after all, because a lot of men have left the workplace. Exactly. Which puts a premium on labor. I, I mean, because I, I think it's because also, Jim, the other day you, you read uh, Mark Clark's um, Mark Clark's sort of peroration about how he feels about what needs to be done in Italy. And, the you know, and essentially morally, righteously angry um, call to arms for Americans in the campaign in Italy. Italy, and again, I'm really struck by the sort of the tone that is saying this is what war is. We're not we're not pretending or glossing over what war is. How was the First World War handled in this regard? Were, were, were people given an unvarnished version of things, or is, is it an attempt to make sure that there isn't a kind of um, uh, 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 as you said, John, a dislocation between the people fighting the war and the people supporting it at home or manufacturing stuff for it at home, whatever. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's in World War One, it's it's kind of similar. It just doesn't go on as long uh, for the U.S. I'm I'm saying uh, it's the fall of 1918, really. Right. So so things don't get as sort of baked in as they do because this tone continues for the rest of the Second World War, doesn't it? That this is oh, a, this is a bad thing, and your boys are dying, and mm-hmm. which I think is really 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 interesting because it because it that feels I don't know often often I guess. Lazy assumptions about what the 1940s were like, and people's, you know, that that we think of the, in fact, in in fact, a way in in the way that the modern media has offered us the Second World War, it's it's bugles and it's it's the greatest generation, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> they didn't look at it that way at the time. 
No, we, we look at it as we live in an era of social media and sophisticated, you know, information and communication, which we do, of course, but so did they in the 1940s. Um, it was the most sophisticated nodes of communication in human history up to that time. It was an incredibly visual generation, especially uh, in America. Um, so, yeah, so the, so the government is kind of walking this, this sort of tightrope of wanting to, you know, as I mentioned, um, impress upon the people at home what the war really is and why they need to be invested in it on a lot of levels, but they also don't want to crush morale. And so that's why you really have to think twice about showing the bodies at Tarawa or, you know, what, what Houston's film is going to look like, because he, I think, you know, to me, what really stands out to me about the film long-term is that they show, um, you know, the dead Americans, they do show them being buried and you do, you kind of see some, some, snippets of faces and you get a little sense of what this looks like as they're burying people. And, and I, and I know that the film is contrived on a, on a lot of levels and Houston tried to sell it as this is the actual combat footage. And most of it isn't okay, but lay that aside. You are seeing the destruction. You are seeing what the weapons look like, uh, you know, and the explosions, all that white phosphorus that you see, for instance, um, you know what I mean? And, and you're seeing the bodies and all that. And so to someone just watching, um, in a theater in January 1940, whenever, 45, whenever it is released, it's it's very powerful, I think, compared to our sort of cynical latter year, oh, we know how they really made the sausage kind of view. Yeah. This is really yeah, yeah, potent yeah. stuff at the time. Yeah. And of course, Houston was over there to, to, to film the liberation of Rome. I mean, that's why he'd been sent over there, and that's what he's supposed to do, <laughs> yes, but then got there. So he, so he thought, well, I'll film this instead. And also, I, I think it's important to kind of, you know, to, to, to recognize that the village the village itself of San Pietro is, is completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And lots and lots of the locals are killed because lots of them are, um, lots of the men are, are kind of forced into Organization Tote, which is the, um, you know, the German labor, labor force. Others are kind of driven out of their homes. Some of them go to the mountains. Then they start creating cl- uh, homes that they dig out. Homes in the soft tufa limestone, which is very soft. It's the same limestone they have in in, in Malta that enables them to grow, you know dig all these tunnels and stuff. Um, in Malta during the siege, well, they they do these the, these caves in the in the kind of sort of western slopes of the um, ed- edge of the village. There's a kind of sort of bit of a kind of cliff face down to this kind of gorge, and they they dig in there and they're they're sitting there, and then this tragedy occurs because they once the battle gets closer they can't get to the stream on the lower slopes anymore and they're they're not starving but they're they're running out of water and there's children and stuff and so one one day the, a whole load of them decide that they're going to they they learn that there is a, a cistern at the southeastern edge of the village which is still hasn't been turned brackish by the germans putting kind of you know awful things in it and it's still drinkable so they decide in the course of the, you know, overnight, what they'll do is they'll creep out in the, you know, the cover of darkness and, and fill up their water pails and, and go get some water from the system. But it means going from one side of the village to the other. Now, normally that would take maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes walk at most. But of course, it's nighttime and Germans are about and Americans are about and there's mines and they don't know where they, you know, they're having to pick their way through the, the rubble of the village and, you know, they're trying not to make a noise. So, so what takes 10, 15 minutes takes hours to get there. And by the time they've got the water and they're coming back, they're, the first sort of little lights of dawn are kind of creeping across the village. And the Americans at the southeastern side see these figures moving around in the main piazza just beneath the church and think they're Germans. Why would they think anything else? An open fire. And a whole load of them are killed. And one of the people that's killed is Rosa Fuoco, who is 32 years old. She's, she's shot in the heart. 
and just dies. And, and she lies on the piazza for three days or two days or whatever it is until the Americans finally liberated on the morning of the 17th of December. And there she is where she fell a few days before, killed by an American bullet still clutching her pail of without water. And after the war, there was no chance that, that this could be lived in again. You know, the time had moved on as well and having a village sort of halfway up a mountain or a quarter of the way up a mountain is no, no good. So they they rebuilt the village on the lower slopes where it's closer to the Via Casalina and less cut off from the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just remained as it as it was. It's, it's, it's overgrown. You can visit there now and wander around the old roads and pathways. You can see, you can just about see the caves at the edge of the village where they, where they sheltered during the battle. And, and you can see the cisterns that they were trying to get to and stuff. And, and it's, it's profoundly moving because, of course, nature's taken its course and some of the buildings have collapsed and the roofs have caved in and ivy's growing up the walls and trees through the old living rooms and all this kind of stuff. But it's a kind of this, this sort of pathetic, in the truest sense, sort of symbol of, of this shattering of lives that was centuries old. I mean, you know, I've just been listening to Brother Tom's stuff on the Aztecs. You know the Spanish turning up and just sort of turning everything that the Mexica knew and understood kind of on its head, and it's the kind of the same thing happening here in a funny sort of way. You know, the, the, these lives are just centuries old, and they've just been cut short, and that's it. And, and there's no going back. It's 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 changed forever by this tragedy of this battle taking place in this. Mm in this valley, you know, that should never have been fought over. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's hard to imagine anything in Hannibal's time that could have been as uprooting and as traumatic as this. Uh, it's yet this represented liberation. Ironically, I guess, you know, we'd all agree. Um, yeah, but what, yeah, yeah, what a yeah, hell yeah. of a price to pay and, and what Mussolini hath wrought in a way of uh, getting Italy involved in this war and what a disaster it was for Italy on so many levels. And this is where you see it play out. My God, I mean, the price they paid. Well, in, I mean, you know, you, you can, civilian populations, when they're the meat and the sandwich, um, it's, you know, it's a thing, thing that's happening right now all over the world in lots of different conflicts. Oh, my I mean, goodness. Not, me. not, yeah, not yeah. in well, any one so place true. in particular, is the truth. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone, though. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. This makes you feel great, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but the, the, the thing for me the, the thing for me now is i mean they all had a miserable time at christmas obviously um but 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 you know they've they've got through this this kind of final massive effort to get through the bernhard line the winter line they've finally got san pietro they've finally got monte camino they're through to the other side and now they're confronted by the Gustav line. They've got to do it all over oh, again. Yeah, so we're going to do it all again. It's like, you ain't seen nothing yet. Casino's waiting. I mean. Oh, man. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's the thing that's, it, it's so apparent in all the diaries that, that I'm reading for the beginning of 1944 at the moment and all the testimonies. They're, they're spent already. That's the point. You know, before you think about crossing the Rapido, before you think about kind of, Climbing up Monte, Monte, you know the Monte Cassino massive. These guys are already absolutely had it up to here. Which brings me more. back to my first question: Why not stop for a month? Why not? Yeah, you know yeah, what? Yeah. Well, I agree. You know, like in the in the Soviet style, where what you do is you you, you build up to a great big hammer blow. I mean, I, and obviously that comes down to a slightly different approach to your manpower. 
and how you feel about your soldiers, doesn't it? Well, but, but again, because they're, they're wanting these, these airfields up and running in their entirety by March to help with Overlord. Yeah. So it's the yeah. tyranny of Overlord is, is, over, is overshadowing everything that's happening in Italy. And there's still this pressure to get north of Rome so that you've got this buffer, so that you've got this, this cushion. And the hope is that, that if they can do an outflanking operation, which, which the topography of Italy lends itself to, then that will force the, um, the Germans to pull back from their current position because they don't want to have a, a, a force coming in around the back. But just like Avalanche, Operation Shingle, which is the Anzio landings, which are going to take place in the third week of, of January 1944, are not big enough in scale to guarantee success in any shape or form. And so yet again, they're, they're confronted with the, the, the guys on the ground are confronted with exactly the same problem that they're confronted with when they're going in with Avalanche, the, the initial invasion of, of Italy at Salerno, that, that it's too little to do to guarantee to achieve what they want to achieve. So it's it's more of a kind of sort of we're doing this with a kind of a wing and a prayer rather than with any kind of sense of guarantees. Mm. But because that landing has to be successful, a maximum effort is needed on the Gustav line to ensure that the Germans are distracted when they land at Anzio. So Anzio is there to relieve the Gustav line, but in order to it to be able to relieve the Gustav line, you have to have maximum effort against the Gustav line first. And so you've got this yet again renewed effort and huge pressure on Fifth Army to, to, to do something substantial, crossing the Garigliano and the Rapido, get up Monte Cassino, you know, on a broad front from Minterno on the sea all the way up to kind of north of Cassino in January 1944 when the weather is dreadful, the snow on the mountains is raining again and it's miserable and awful and everyone's fed up and exhausted and it's kind of recipe for disaster and it's the pressures of global war because yeah, there's only war. so many resources to go around um and the fact that they then redeploy landcraft for operation shingle affects normandy you know pushing it back from may to june famously and certainly this has an effect i want to have the battle of normandy plays out i mean who knows you know and then not to mention what's going on in the pacific it's just another example of doing what's possible rather than what's ideal, I guess. Yeah. And it's the nature of the fact that, that on the on the priority list of all the major operations that the Allies are doing at this time, Italy's at the bottom of the rung. You oh, know, well, almost it's, the bottom. It's, 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 China's really at the bottom of the, yes, the, China, the global. China last on the list. And because they because Chiang Kai-shek is in the process of getting completely screwed at this point too when, when uh, the, the Americans in particular have promised him, you know, uh, operations in Burma, uh, amphibious operations, and and you know the British had acceded to this, and then of course post Tehran they all renege on that, and you know yeah. because of Normandy and because of Anzio and all here we go again. So Chiang Kai Shek usually gets the last bite at the apple, uh, and then yeah, and I think yeah, we say Alexander and the Italian theater get the next last bite at the apple as things go on, and I mean it's just such a mess, I guess. Uh, but it's all yeah. driven by fundamentally kind of decent ideals which is let's get this show over and done with as quickly as possible so that minimum amount of people get get killed but by trying to hurry it up you're also kind of making it worse <laughs> well and, and yeah exactly <laughs> haste makes waste yeah i mean and yeah and also a very decent idea let's destroy this odious regime in berlin as soon as we possibly can you know the germany first strategy or whatever which, I mean, they're not, this isn't what's driving it, but in the light of the Holocaust later, I certainly think we'd all agree uh, there's a great moral imperative to that, too. 
Um, but that not, isn't necessarily what's driving their grand strategy, of course, but certainly it's a factor. But if you um, live in San Pietro, it's your misfortune that in order to destroy the government in Berlin, you've got to go through there. You've got to go go through up and down these mountains and valleys and, and on and on and on. Um, well, and San Pietro um, stands in for so many other places. Exactly. You know, as exactly. things unfold. Yep. Exactly. Well, um, thanks very much, Jim. Thanks, John. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this year of uh, War Waffle with an American Tilt. Uh, there'll be more of it next year. We'll see you, hopefully, at We Have Ways Festival in July. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, John, and you, Jim. Cheerio. Cheers, everyone, and you guys. And to you. See ya. <laughs>